Hello, and welcome to another episode of Crimes and Witch Demeanors, the paranormal podcast where we delve beyond the Wikipedia page and use historic and archival resources to uncover the truth about your favorite ghostly tales. I'm your host and lovable librarian, Joshua Spellman. Welcome back, my ghouls. This week, you know, we're just going to head right into the episode. I'm not even going to yabble, yabble, babble on about my life. We're just going to go right into it. And we're heading to the south. So make sure that you're masked up and vaxxed up because ghosts are scary enough. You don't want to worry about COVID, too. We are headed to the small town of Atchison, Kansas, which is known to some as the most haunted town in America. Though, again, it feels like every town we visit on this podcast, they make that same claim probably because it's not verifiable by any means at all, but I digress. And we're going to be investigating the infamous Sally House. The Sally House is known as one of the most haunted homes in America. And, well, see above. In my mind, I've dubbed the Sally House as being the Southern Amityville Horror for reasons that you'll uncover soon enough. But first, let's hear the supposed scary story of the salacious Sally House. When Deborah and Tony Pickman first moved into their new home at 508 North 2nd Street in Atchison, Kansas, on New Year's Eve, 1992, they were eager to start their new year and their new life. But little did they know that instead, they'd come across an old life. One that would test their marriage, jeopardize the safety of their unborn child, and threaten their very sanity. The two-story white brick house was full of historic charm, having been built in 1867. It had a small porch, and each of the windows was lined with a quaint blue trim. The perfect place for these young newlyweds to start their family. Once they had moved in, they promptly began converting one of the bedrooms into a nursery for their baby. Everything went smoothly, and Deborah gave birth to their son Taylor at the end of June of 1993. At first, everything seemed perfect in the house or as perfect as it could for a home that age. Lights did tend to flicker, and sometimes their oven timer would go off on its own, but that's just an old house. There were cold drafts, the floors would creak, but everything could be explained away by faulty wiring or a shifting foundation. Until, of course, it couldn't. One night, Deborah, Tony, and the baby came home late from visiting family, and upon entering the nursery, they were shocked to discover that all of Taylor's stuffed animals were sitting in a perfect circle in the middle of the nursery's floor. Paw to paw, they seemed to be holding hands, or perhaps they were conducting a seance. Immediately, the Pickmans thought it was a joke. Tony's sister-in-law had dropped off a high chair for them earlier that day while they were gone, and this must have been her idea of a silly prank. However, when they called and asked her, she said that she didn't do it. She confessed that she did go into the nursery while she was there to see how they had decorated it, but when she did, there weren't any stuffed animals on the floor. In fact, she had an uneasy feeling during her whole entire visit in the house, and she felt a very cold chill as she went up the stairs. By the time she actually made it to the nursery, she felt so uncomfortable that she had to leave. She suggested it could possibly be a ghost. Well, Deborah believed her. 
She had felt that same cold spot at the exact same location on the stairs before. Tony, however, was not convinced. They hung up the phone and promptly cleaned up the nursery, putting all the animals back in their rightful places. They put the baby to bed and went downstairs. However, once they reached the living room, they looked up and saw the nursery light was on. Had they really forgotten to shut off the light? Tony went back up, and to his shock, there was one single teddy bear in the middle of the room. Concerned that someone was in the house, Tony and Deborah searched high and low, even in the basement, but they found no one. Still a bit creeped out, Deborah put the stuffed bear back in the nursery and again went downstairs. An hour or so later, she went back to check on the baby in the nursery, and the bear was once again in the center of the room. Now in a panic, Deborah called Tony's brother, Larry, to come over. He was a skeptic and tough, and if anyone could find a reasonable explanation, it would be Larry. Larry came over, and they waited. They checked the nursery. Nothing. Everything was as it should be. They went back downstairs and waited some more. They went back in the nursery, checked again. Nothing. Maybe they were imagining everything after all. Just as Larry turned to leave, they noticed one of the stuffed bears they kept downstairs was now facing the wall. This happened when they were all in the nursery together. It wasn't facing the wall before, so it couldn't have been any of them. Now even Larry was a bit weirded out, and he actually promised to call his boss, whose sister happened to be a psychic, to see if she could help them. While on the phone with his mother the next day, Tony explained the events of the night before. Upon hearing the story, Tony's mother recalled that her friend's daughter used to live in the house and decided to ask if she had noticed anything strange while living there. And it turns out, in fact, that she had. Activity not dissimilar to the Pikmin's own experience. There was often a strange smell in the house, and toys would always end up lying about on the floor. Of course, it could have been her children, but when she would ask them, they would blame it on a young girl named Sally, who they claimed lived in the house with them. Was Sally an imaginary friend, or the name of the spirit that lives in the home? The Pikmins would get their answer sooner than they expected. Barbara, the sister of Larry's boss, called the family to give them a psychic reading over the phone. Although she lived in California, she picked up on a spirit, a spirit of a young girl named Sally. Despite this coincidence, Tony thought it was all a bunch of baloney and simply laughed it off. But Tony wouldn't be laughing for long. A few days later, his brother George came to visit. They were in the living room and Tony was telling his brother about the strange goings-on in his home. Jokingly, Tony picked up his camera, pointed at the infamous bear, and challenged Sally. Hey, Sally, (laughs) if you're in here, smile for the camera, say cheese. And he clicked the shutter. As soon as the flash went off, George saw the bear begin to move and turn around of its own accord. He screamed, and Tony saw it too. They both ran for the stairs, up to the nursery to where Deborah was to tell her what happened. George somehow couldn't follow. He couldn't move. He felt as though something was holding him fast, pushing him back. A cold sensation crept all over his body before the unseen force finally released him. The two brothers rushed up to Deborah and told her what happened. Freaked out, they decided it was probably time to leave. They grabbed baby Tyler and ran outside. Tony fumbled with the buckle on the baby's car seat, and as he did, he felt a sharp, excruciating pain. But he had to fight through it. They had to get out of that house. 
They made their way over to Tony's mother's house, and once there, Deborah lifted up Tony's shirt. There were three large, bloody scratches running the length of Tony's back. This was a red flag. This didn't seem like the haunting of a young girl. Tony and Deborah, at a loss of what to do, flew Barbara, the psychic, in from California to visit the house. During her visit, Barbara said that there was nothing wrong. It was indeed just the ghost of Sally, the young girl who lived there. She was perfectly harmless, she assured them. She just didn't like men due to some kind of trauma or abuse that she suffered in her life. She told the Pickmans they simply had to set ground rules for Sally, just like they would her own child. And she assured them that Sally was completely harmless. Deborah trusted Barbara and tried to appease the ghost of Sally by buying her a doll, which she wrapped in gift wrap. She offered it to the ghost by putting it in the nursery and told her that it was for her, but only if she could be a good little ghost girl. Deborah left and came back to the nursery a few hours later to find the doll had been removed from the box and placed in the crib, but the box was still completely wrapped. How on earth did this happen? Was the ghost of Sally really this powerful? The Pickmans continued to have ghostly encounters with Sally, though their experiences did differ from one another. Deborah's were always fun and playful, the feeling of someone cuddling up to her on the couch or the sound of the laughter of a little girl. But Tony was experiencing something different altogether. Strange voices, cold bursts of air, and the feeling like someone was biting his toes. Tony began to have nightmares of being dragged from bed by his wrists, and when he would wake in the morning, he would find them covered in blisters. Tony even saw Sally once, a young girl with wide blue eyes and hair tied neatly in a bow. She seemed so innocent, but he was well aware of the horrific things she was doing to him while turning his wife against him. Deborah seemed to be falling in love with Sally, treating her like her own child often walking around the home and speaking to her and buying her gifts and toys. One time, Tony even saw an older woman in the house, but when he followed her, no one was there and Deborah was not even home at the time. The baby began to experience things, waking up in the night and screaming, and one of its toys, which records your voice and plays it back to you, now would only emanate a horrible, blood-curdling scream. Their Christmas photos when they were developed all had a very strange mist in them. And curious, they sent the photographs to Barbara, and she admitted, that was not Sally. Barbara explained that that was another ghost, the ghost of an older woman with a more stern and domineering personality. Perhaps that was who Tony saw earlier that year. And it wasn't the last he'd see of her. One day while taking a nap, the woman materialized in front of his bed. The mattress and the furniture began to shake as she reached out her hand, covered in black lace, saying to him menacingly, I'm gonna... But then he woke up, but he could feel that if she had gotten any closer, she would have strangled him. Meanwhile, in California, Barbara the Psychic began speaking openly about the experiences of the Pickman family. It just so happened that a producer for a show called Sightings attended one of her lectures, and his interest was piqued. He promptly called the Pickmans and asked to have them on the show. Desperate for help and answers, the Pickmans agreed. The crew arrived in July of 1994 to begin filming. And Sally did not disappoint. Sally, it turns out, was not camera shy. 
Almost immediately, an unseen force began to claw and scratch at Tony's arm during Deborah's interview. And then, during his own, it began to claw at his stomach. The camera crew filmed the event for nine whole minutes as blood began to form. During that first night alone, Tony was attacked 11 times. During another day of filming, Tony was scratched on the back, but this time the cuts formed the initials, M.C., the first and middle initials of the man who built the house, Michael Finney. Michael Finney died only a year after the home was built, leaving his wife and two sons behind. One of his sons, Charles, grew up and became a doctor, Dr. Charles C. Finney. In fact, according to the psychic that the sightings crew brought in, he was the reason this house was haunted. Legend has it that one night a mother brought her daughter, Sally, to Dr. Charles Finney because she had been suffering from excruciating stomach pains for days. Upon examination, Dr. Finney realized the issue was her appendix and that it had to be removed immediately as the infection had been allowed to go on for far too long. In a rush to save the girl's life, Dr. Finney didn't administer the correct dose of anesthetic, and Sally awoke howling and screaming in pain, unsure of what was happening to her. She was certain she was being tortured. She screamed at the doctor, I curse you! I hate you forever! and died on the operating table. This was the explanation for Sally's hatred of men, because the last thing she saw was a man she believed to be murdering her. It's believed that her last words of, I hate you forever, placed a curse on the home. The sightings crew eventually finished filming and left, but unfortunately, the ghosts did not go with them. The home was more active than ever, and a medium approached the Pikmins and offered to cleanse the house for them. Desperate, they agreed. The medium identified that there were three spirits in the home, a young girl, a mean older woman, and a man that she could only describe as a gentleman. But before she started the cleansing, she asked the Pikmins if they wanted any of the ghosts to stay. And Deborah, being so enamored and attached to her beloved Sally, asked that she let her remain behind. After all, Sally couldn't be the one causing all this harm, could she? During the cleansing, Tony was once again attacked by an unseen force, bloody scratches yet again appearing on his back. And after the cleansing, things did not get better. They got worse. The voices that Tony was hearing only got louder, clearer, more violent, evil. They told him to do atrocious things. They told him to kill, to kill his wife, to kill his child. One day, a stray cat found its way into the Pikmin's home while Deborah and Tyler were out. Without hesitating, overcome by rage and violence, Tony ran to the kitchen and grabbed a butcher knife from the counter and stabbed the cat to death. When he finished, he simply walked over to the couch and sat down like nothing happened. It wasn't until some time later, when he went back in the kitchen, he saw the cat and remembered what he'd done. He hurriedly cleaned it up before Deborah came back home, but this was the last straw for him. He knew that if he didn't do anything, Deborah would be next. But somehow, Deborah didn't find this alarming, and she insisted that they stay. Two days later, Tony was pushed so hard out of his bedroom into the hall, into the staircase, that he broke three spindles and almost fell over the banister. Now this was the last straw. This is what put Deborah over the edge. The Pikmins moved out two weeks later. They moved into another home in Atchison, just a little over a mile away. 
Tony and Deborah are still married to this very day, still happy and alive. However, the house still has a tight grip on Tony. He's since woken up with his clothes on fire, knives have been thrown at him. In fact, one night he woke up in the dead of night, in the middle of winter, standing with snow up to his knees, right in front of the Sally house. It was calling to him, pulling him back. He could still hear its whispers. Kill. There is a lot to unpack from this story, and unfortunately, I'm not qualified to do all of that, especially not unpacking the possible very real mental illness of Tony Pickman. But what I am qualified to unpack is the history. So let's start there with the story of the ghost of Sally and her alleged murderer, Dr. Charles Finney. Dr. Finney was a real man and a real doctor, and he did in fact own 508 North 2nd Street. Actually, Dr. Finney also owned 504 in 510 2nd Street as well. He lived in each of these homes at different points in his life, and interestingly enough, his sons owned a good number of homes on the street as well, so really, they rather owned the place. And in a way, I guess they did really put their name on Atchison. Dr. Finney was elected mayor of Atchison in 1913, and there's a pretty rich historic record surrounding him, which honestly is no surprise. He was an affluent white doctor man. Of course, there's records of him galore. He wasn't at all boring, though. He was once arrested for disturbing the peace. In his younger days, he was an accomplished figure skater who would often appear dressed in drag going by the name of Miss Colby of Baltimore. Watch out, Denali. Looks like someone's coming for your gig. But aside from that, he got mixed up in some drama around a stolen wallet, which I'm going to read to you now. This is from an October 20th, 1887 article from the Atchison Daily Globe. Charles Finney and W.S. Anderson had a fight this morning, which came about in the way. A few days ago, a Miss Page, a sister-in-law of Anderson's, had a pocketbook containing $3 stolen from the dental rooms of Dr. Scholl's. There was present in the room at the time a stranger and Dr. Charles Finney. Neither were accused at the time of taking it, and the matter rested with an advertisement in the Globe until yesterday, when Anderson went to Dr. Scholl's and, according to that gentleman's statement, and that of Mr. Reed of the packing house, accused Finney of taking the pocketbook. Finney heard this morning that he had been so accused and went to the store of Mr. Anderson and asked him to step up to the doctor's office and retract his statement. Anderson said he had nothing to retract, and after a few words, Finney struck him over the head several times with a heavy cane. Nick Anderson, W.S. Anderson's father, was present and drew a revolver, which he was prevented from using. Anderson claims that all he said was that the taking of the money lay between Finney and the stranger. He refused to cause Finney's arrest, saying that Finney would in retaliation cause his father's arrest for drawing a deadly weapon. The next day, the same paper reported that a man named Jim Orr narrowly escaped a thumping from Charles Finney's cane because he called him Bub. But there is some resolution to the whole wallet incident. Charles Finney was arrested by the marshal the day prior for disturbing the peace and was fined $10 by the judge. 
W.S. Anderson was also arrested on the same charge, but was released. So eventually, Charles was also released, and, you know, charges and things were dropped. But my whole entire point of retelling this stupid tale of a stolen wallet and a cane thumping was that if something so petty was reported in the paper, surely the death of one of Dr. Charles Finney's patients would be as well. Right? So the story of Sally's death really varies. There's a couple of different versions. Some say that Sally was actually Dr. Finney's daughter that he had with another woman who was his mistress, and he actually purposely killed Sally and her mother to cover up the fact that he was having an affair. Other versions say that after Sally had died on the operating table, her mother, in a fit of rage and grief, attacked Dr. Finney for what she called murdering her child. And in self-defense, Dr. Finney killed her too and disposed of both of their bodies. Is it possible that actually happened and Sally's mother is the older woman presence who haunts the home? We'll circle back to that in a minute. So it turns out that there was a Sally who died in the town of Atchison during Dr. Finney's time at the home on 508 North 2nd Street. However, Sally Isabel Lander Hall, who died in 1905, was 34 years old at the time of her death. She didn't live in the home, nor did she have any connection to it, and unfortunately, she doesn't fit the description of the older woman either. To make matters worse, by this time in 1905, Dr. Finney had actually moved next door to 510 North 2nd Street. So that's a dead end. No pun intended. Now it's possible that perhaps Sally might have been a young black girl, For this time period, records probably wouldn't really have been kept of her death. But but it was said that Tony had actually seen Sally, and she had blue eyes, which kind of takes away, you know, the fact that she could have been black. She could have been poor. That's possible. And her death and burial also could not have been recorded. But insofar as the historic record goes, Sally never existed, nor did she die in the home. Now, the ghost of the old woman actually could be explained. I actually have no doubt that the ghost of the old woman is the ghost of Agnes Marie Finney True, sister to Dr. Charles C. Finney. I say Charles C. Finney because Dr. Charles Finney had a son, Dr. Charles Finney, who was Dr. Charles H. Finney, but that's neither here nor there. So here is the obituary for Agnes published in the November 29, 1939 Atchison Daily Globe. I'm going to read it because it gives a fairly good summation of not only her life, but also the Finney family and the house as a whole. Mrs. Agnes Finney True, 79, widow of William A. True, Burlington Railroad locomotive engineer, died at midnight last night at her home, 508 North 2nd Street, from infirmities due to advanced age. Mrs. True had been ill for the past three years. She was a lifelong resident of this city. A daughter of Michael and Kate Finney, pioneer residents of the city, Agnes Marie Finney was born in Atchison October 30, 1861. Her parents came to Atchison about 1855, a year after the city was organized, and her father was wharfmaster here when there was a great deal of boat traffic on the Missouri River. The family home was located near the foot of Kansas Avenue, not far from the levee. When Agnes Marie Finney was six years old, her father built the home on North 2nd Street. She spent the remainder of her life there. She was educated at Mount St. Scholastica Convent. In 1915, Miss Finney was united in marriage to William A. True of Rouleau, Nebraska. He died in 1920. Mrs. True was a good, kind-hearted, and charitable woman who had great many friends. A veteran reporter on the Globe remembers that when she was young, Mrs. True was considered one of the prettiest girls in Atchison. She carried the popularity of her youth throughout her life. 
Many years ago, when waltzing was the fashion of the day, Mrs. True was envied by all her girlhood acquaintances for her ability at dancing. She possessed a mirror-like memory which age failed to dim and often supplied the globe with information concerning bygone days. She was a communicant of St. Benedict's Church, a member of the St. Anne's Altar Society, and a charter member of the Atchison Music Club. Surviving her are her brother, Dr. C. C. Finney of Atchison, and her nephew, Dr. C. H. Finney of St. Louis. So the one discrepancy there is that every medium describes this woman as being mean when it seems that she was actually quite personable and nice and a really good dancer. So who knew? There's a lot of possible explanations for the hauntings experienced by the Pickman family. It's possible that it could have been Agnes and, who knows, maybe just a demonic presence, which it really does seem to be so with all the scratches and such. But maybe the explanation is less paranormal. I do find it strange that prior to the Pickmans buying the house, there were really no reports of hauntings, and this story just sounds altogether too familiar. Especially with the appearance of television crews promptly on the scene, it really does remind me of the Amityville horror. I mean, Deborah went on to write a book about it too, which I'm sure she did profit pretty nicely from. There have also been reports of black mold and the like, which I'm sure could lead to some of the lasting mental effects suffered by Tony Pickman. So, not unlike the Amityville Horror, I do think it might have just been a publicity stunt for attention. Um, Deborah got to write a book from it, she got to get money from that. Um, it seemed to be like possibly a business venture for them, but they really didn't stay very long, and they no longer own the home, which is now open for tours, and with an added cost, guests can stay the night. So maybe it wasn't done for money, but it could have been done for attention, but I think more realistically, possibly Tony was really suffering from some kind of mental illness, which kind of manifested itself in this way. It would explain why he was experiencing the bulk of these experiences and voices, and I don't know, the whole scratches thing is pretty easy to also um, fake. I actually remember when I was younger seeing the footage from the sighting show, and the scratches weren't that dramatic. It's kind of like how you can scratch yourself and then, you know, a couple of minutes later, the marks will show up on your body. It was very that, nothing dramatic like slashes. But fortunately for us at this podcast, like I just mentioned, for an added cost, you can stay the night. Well, I didn't stay the night. My friend and colleague, Kristen, a fellow archivist, recently stayed the night at the Sally House. Uh, I asked her about her experiences and observations, and she sent me some pictures along with this blurb about her stay at the house. The pictures, I will be putting some of them up on the podcast Instagram if you don't follow, at Crimes and Witch Demeanors. Link will be in the show notes as usual. But this is what Kristen had to say about staying the night at the infamous Sally House. On entering the house, I quickly got a strong headache. The first thing we did was sit down at the table to read the guest book and catch up with work. It was a Thursday and we were both struggling to sign off of our jobs for the weekend. The headache and pressure in my head persisted and only eased after some Advil and dinner. Mexican food, which, by the way, is rather bland in Atchison. It's important to point out here that I can often get headaches in old houses and that I am particularly sensitive to mold. One thing we encountered that I haven't heard much about on Sally House ghost hunting shows is how much street noise you can hear from various points in the home. After dinner, we did an hour-long session asking questions and recording for EVPs. We're first-time ghost hunters. We set up in the large walk-in closet upstairs that several people in the guest book reported bad feelings and sightings in. 
The photo I attached with the glow sticks is where we tried to add a bit of misguided ambience. We didn't get anything in our recordings that wasn't also audible in the room. Mostly fidgeting from us or the street and pedestrian traffic, including the voice of a small boy who was walking by with his parents. I was careful to mention these things verbally as they happened so that we couldn't get confused by an explainable, suspicious sound later on. We ended up setting up our sleeping bags in the living room. After the communication session, things felt a little bit lighter. Catherine, who grew up in an old house, was particularly comfortable. I was still wary that I might see something out of the corner of my eye. There was a TV and a DVD player with an odd selection to choose from. We went with Sightings, Heartland Ghost, a TV drama based loosely off the haunting at Sally House. Somehow the movie managed to ham-fistedly tie in slavery and mislabeled Kansas as a Confederate state. One star would not recommend. The next morning, everything in the house was even easier. The house gets good light, and it took to all the rooms to check around and get photos. The scariest thing we saw were the leftovers in the freezer. I assume that they were left there by tour guides? There's a fake doctor's table exhibit in the kitchen with a drawing of Sally. Throughout the house, there are laminated pages with descriptions of paranormal sightings and encounters. The staircase to the upstairs is narrow and a little bit disorienting. I've included a picture of my feet on the stairs to show how short they are. I'm only 5'6", and my toes hung over the edge. I've also included multiple photos of cracks and patches in the walls and ceilings that are likely due to the house settling. Both Catherine and I had watched the Ghost Adventure Sally House episode before getting there. We checked the children's room and toy closet, but couldn't locate the moving panda bear highlighted in the episode. In the episode, a lot was made out of the hole in the basement. By the house rules, we were not allowed in the basement. We're generally rule followers, and we really weren't interested in the reported black mold issue. When we checked out the spacious backyard, which is truly enviable, I noticed that the broken brick foundation is visible under the porch. I wouldn't be surprised if this smaller opening joins up with the crumbling foundation in the basement. It could also be the cause of all the structural issues. While there, we didn't see anything unusual, and I was bummed that my entry in the guest book was rather lackluster. If I were to go back with serious gear, I'd be game to check the house for infrasound. An open hole in the foundation is likely to do some weird things on windy nights. Thank you to Kristen for submitting that. It seems that she didn't experience anything, but the house itself seems to have weird angles and cracks in the foundation, which I'm sure could let noises and voices in. And again, the black mold, that to me really sticks out as a potential explanation for some of this. So is the home haunted? Is it just plagued by black mold, a crumbling foundation, or are the only hauntings those of an unwell mind? It's really quite hard to say. So I'll let you be the judge on that. However, the history books do cast doubt on the namesake of this quaint brick home. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave me a review on iTunes if that's where you like to listen. But regardless of where you do listen, the biggest thing you can do to help out this podcast is to just tell a friend. Spread the word. Tell a television producer like the Pikmins did. Let's grow our little family of bibliographers. But until next time, remember, don't give ghost girls dolls to play with, because then you have a creepy ghost and a creepy doll. Don't call a television crew in if you want to keep your credibility. And as always... Stay spooky. Bye.